0: Greetings, podcast listeners. You are listening to the Colorado Review podcast in partnership with the Center for Literary Publishing at Colorado State University. In today's episode, Associate Editor Nicole Piasecki sits down with writer Sarah Curtis to talk about her short story, The Ghosts of Lubbock, from Colorado Review's summer 2021 issue. They talk about family, recovering public and private memory, connection to place and landscape, and how to find your story in creative nonfiction. Sarah Curtis's essays have appeared in the Los Angeles Review of Books, Creative Nonfiction, Salon, The Colorado Review, The American Literary Review, Crazy Horse, and elsewhere. Her work has been noted in the best American essay series and anthologized in River Teeth, 20 years of creative nonfiction. She holds a master's in journalism from Boston University and an MFA in writing from Vermont College of Fine Arts. Her writing experience spans the spectrum from newspaper reporting to public relations and marketing to web content. She's on the editorial team at the Maine Review. A native Southerner, Sarah lives with her family in a 170 year old Michigan farmhouse. She is at work on a biographical memoir.
1: Well, I'm here with Sarah Curtis, author of The Ghosts of Lubbock from the Colorado Review, Summer 21 issue. And first I just wanna greet you, Sarah, and tell you thanks for being here with us today and coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me, it's such an honor. Of course, we're really excited to talk to you today I love your essay and uh, I think to get started just to introduce you and your work to our listeners, um, would you be willing to read a little excerpt from your piece. Sure, of course.
2: Sometimes I feel like I grew up with two fathers, my real father and my stage father, my real father hunched over his plate at the dinner table but my stage father stood tall with a defiant cowboy swagger, his guitar propped against one hip. My real father walked around the house in faded concert t-shirts and sweatpants, but my stage father wore black with flashes of silver, Lucchese cowboy boots and belt buckles that caught the light. My real father could be moody and absent, but my stage father was all and Sparkle. Perhaps I tried to converge the two fathers in my young mind for I didn't call my real father dad until I was an older child. I called him by his name, Sonny. Sonny, your father? My third grade teacher wanted to know. Well, yes, of course he was, but it wasn't so simple as that.
1: Great, thank you. Yeah, I love that section. I think it really sets up uh, the conversation, uh, the first thing I wanted to ask you about, and that is just this idea of having this sort of intimate memory of a person or a place, and then also having this idea of the collective memory and how other people might've known your father or even his experiences as a musician in the world.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's a really complex dynamic because on one level, this essay is my attempt to strip away my dad's public persona in order to know the quote unquote real Sonny Curtis. And on another level, I think that effort is largely futile. <laughs> so that's not to say that you know we don't all have public and private personas and different masks that we wear around different people and code switching and all of that. But I also am not sure I really buy into the idea that we have these fixed identities, like these naked selves that remain the same no matter what airs we try on. I think that's true to an extent, but I also think our identities are constantly in flux depending on our environments. You know, we've evolved as far as a species because we've gotten pretty good at adaptation. So, as for my dad, he was a child prodigy on the guitar, which means he had to develop a stage persona from a very young age. So, in a way, his stage persona is the real man. It is his it is his adaptation and we all have these adaptations, right? Like I love the Kurt Vonnegut quote, "We are what we pretend to be, so we must be very careful about what we pretend to be." <laughs> but, you know, I would also say that one thing I I know about my father is that his identity is forged from this landscape from West Texas, even though he hasn't lived there in 60 or something years. So that is such a such a part of him that I knew in order to write about him And to better understand him, I had to travel to Lubbock. I don't live in Lubbock, I live in Michigan. And I had to walk around this farmland and I had to look at these abandoned buildings and I had to try to see it through my dad's eyes. And that is that more than almost anything, this trip has helped me sort of strip away that persona and really see the core of him, which is from a man from this place. And I've actually made more of an effort to start going back there myself too, because I don't wanna just be a detached writer mining my family for material. I want to actually be more connected to this place myself. So it's a dual purpose, I would say.
1: I think that's really interesting to consider the interplay between identity and landscape. And I really think, you know, that that's what this essay does so beautifully is to show you. how connected the self is to the places. And another thought I had is just even the places that no longer exist in the way that they once existed. I think about that a lot when I, when I look at this essay and read through it again, that, you know, so much of, so it's almost like the essay is rebuilding the place that no longer exists while also rebuilding understanding between the narrator and her father and sort of what that landscape meant.
2: It is an essay that is trying to preserve these stories before they turn to dust in a way, for sure.
1: I was really interested in the examples of what preservation looks like in the actual lives of the people in the essay and then also the the narrator really grappling with the ways that she's trying to preserve as well and mm-hmm. and whether or not some of these ways that she finds unusual for example the the staged bedroom you know if really what she's trying to do is really the same thing that everybody has the same Urge to try to keep the past the same, even though, again, like that's a futile thing,
2: I mean, you've hit on it. I think this I, I began writing about my dad, and and roughly around the same time I began writing this essay shortly after he was diagnosed with stage three cancer. So from the very start, the project was about preservation. it was that was the goal. It wasn't like a voyage of discovery or a memoir, it was not even personal. It was just, I'm getting this history down before it's gone. But um, I do think it is a sort of a fixation of mine maybe. I don't know, every writer has, I think, their own oddities and fixations they return to. And I know I've been thinking about preserving ghosts or legacies from a very early age just by watching my dad's career. I mean, he continued to play with Buddy Holly's band, the Crickets, for over 50 years after Buddy Holly died. And he, you know, singing these songs night after night, which isn't to say that it was his entire career. He had it, but it, you know, he had a songwriting career as well, but it was a significant part of it, singing these songs night after night that were originally sung by a dead man. And I don't, it sounds morbid when I put it that way, but I don't think it bothered him. I think, in fact, he felt grateful to be part of this larger history. And I think he felt like it was his responsibility to preserve Buddy's memory so to give you an example he wrote this song called the real buddy holly story where he sort of sets the record straight about the hollywood film the buddy holly story which he hated it was filled with inaccuracies and he hated that movie and the last line says you know the levee ain't dry and the music didn't die cuz buddy holly lives every time you play rock and roll and i have never been in an audience where he plays that song and gets to that line where the audience just doesn't go bananas and It's electric and I mean, it it brings tears to my eyes when I hear it, even though I've heard it a million times. I think because it's this powerful idea that we have the ability to resurrect our heroes and bring them back to life through music or in my case, through writing. Though, as you mentioned, it's futile, it's an illusion. It's one we've bought into and you can see that when you drive anywhere in Lubbock. I mean, Buddy's ghost is everywhere you look the city just broke ground on this huge arts campus the Buddy Holly Hall of Performing Arts and Sciences that they hope will bring back downtown Lubbock like that's that's interesting a ghost bringing a city back to life <laughs> you know so it is also fraught I think preservation is very fraught like I this isn't in the essay but I think it's important to note here that Buddy Holly was not exactly a hero in Lubbock when he was alive he he and my dad played rock and roll. And that was derived from black rhythm and blues, what they used to call race music. And after Buddy became famous, he, that and that was very verboten. I don't need to add that probably, but white DJs wouldn't play it on the air. And after Buddy became famous, he fell in love with Maria Elena Santiago, who was the Puerto Rican born receptionist at his New York publishing house. And when he took her home to Lubbock, he saw firsthand the racism she faced. And so she has said in interviews that that racism played a part in why the couple ultimately moved away from Lubbock to Greenwich Village shortly before he died. This is all to say that in some ways, these modern day efforts to preserve the memory of Buddy Holly in Lubbock is born of historical revisionism. And as someone raised in Tennessee in the South, like I've seen my share of that. I've been to civil war reenactments and every Tennessee child of my generation, and maybe even today, I don't know, had to visit the Hermitage, the president, the home of President Andrew Jackson, and he was painted in these glowing terms, despite the fact that, you know, he oversaw the genocide that was the Trail of Tears. So I've seen firsthand how preservation can be beautiful, and it can also be pathological, and it can impede progress, but for me, I hope it's the former and not the latter, and I do feel a deep urge to preserve some of this history and the only, the best or only not way I really know how to do that is in writing.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think you capture so many different layers of, of preservation in that story. I mean, the idea that the narrator's father really, in this case, like your father is trying to preserve like the right story or the story that he, he experienced with Buddy Holly, and then you're trying to preserve, preserve the story of his life, and then the way that the land influenced his life as sort of one of the many realities and one of the many stories that are told about that land. And what stories get told, how they get told, and by whom just matters so much. And, you know, your story is is one part of that conversation, but it's bringing in this outsider's perspective, which is in some ways really useful for the reader to see that the narrator is also an outsider in some ways to her father's life. And so getting to kind of be that outsider along with the narrator, I found that to be really interesting because we're seeing it for the first time almost as she's seeing it for the first time.
2: Oh yeah, that's interesting. I'm I am an outsider in Lubbock, Texas. And that makes me sad in some ways, because they're my family. But it also, I think, allows me to see things a little clearer, maybe. That said, I never want to paint these people with a broad brushstroke. You know, I call it like, I don't want to J.D. Vance them. (laughs) I don't want to hillbilly elegy them. First of all, I don't think they're hillbillies. I think they're working class people who have devote their lives to this farm. And they have a vast array of knowledge that I will never have. I could never build a shooting circle from a clay pigeon thrower for one thing. <laughs> so it's hard because I, I seek connection to them but at the same time, my, my distance from them is what propels me forward, I think, is what motivates me to tell these stories is because so much of why I write is to find my own connection. And I think that's what CNF does so beautifully is connects us to humanity.
1: Yeah. And I, I was thinking when you're talking too about the idea of being an outsider, just how much vulnerability there is in going into this place that you know you want to learn more about, but you also feel your outsiderness. And again, like that's really evident, but the vulnerability and sort of the narrator's quest, it just sets up this idea of almost you can feel the tension, I guess, that the narrator is experiencing, even at the prospect of asking these questions, even though these are intimate, you know, her father is an intimate person in her life that she spent her whole childhood with there's still this slight apprehension that I feel as a reader as to, you know, asking the questions and, and really trying to figure out if she's ever going to know the answers. And I was just interested in whether or not, you know, you said you went into this essay thinking this was about preservation, but there's also this really strong vulnerability that's conveyed. And I wonder if you expected that kind of going into the writing of the essay.
2: No, I didn't. When I first started writing this essay, I was really just documenting it. And, in fact, I felt it felt very hard to write about this experience for some reason. And so i I actually sort of just transcribed my experiences as, as as a way to find my way in. And it took me really years to craft it into an essay. Yeah, so I mean, being vulnerable, it it was really more about my dad in the beginning than it was about me. But that's been the journey that I've had with this project writing about my dad is. I began it sort of as a biographer and then I realized, well, I'm not a biographer. I'm a daughter. I've, I've got skin in the game. And actually that might make, be what makes the story interesting to people because it gives them, like you were saying, I'm an outsider and my status gives maybe people an inroad into
1: this. That gave me so much investment in the essay because I, I could just feel that outsiderness, and I could I could kind of take on that persona as a reader too. And also thought, you know, along the same lines, is the telling of the story is so much of a part of the story as well, which I think is is part of CNF in general. Uh, you know, that the sort of meta narrative of telling the story and how hard it is to tell the story. And I did notice that, you know, following, almost like you, you know, were a reporter. However, you know, that feeling, like you said, that you have skin in the game was really evident. And also the, how much is at stake for this narrator? You know, that was really compelling, her emotional journey.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it goes back to the old writing uh, adage, when, more for fiction, I suppose, but I think it's relevant in creative nonfiction. Is what is the your character trying to achieve? Your, every character needs to want something, and there needs to be something standing in every character's way. And I think it's helpful to remember when you're starting out writing personal essays. You know, it's you don't get this right away, or I didn't get it right away. But it's helpful to remember I am a character on the page. i my narr- the narrator is a character on the page. And my narrator has to want something. There has to be stakes for her or it's not going to be interesting to a reader. Mm-hmm. It's very hard and like to identify your own stakes, right? We have a lot of stakes. Like I have stakes from the minute I wake up. I need my kids to do this. I need my husband to take someone to school. I need to figure out what I'm making for dinner. I need to find time to get back to this person and make a deadline. I mean, so we're overwhelmed with stakes. We're swimming in them. That's what I think is so challenging about writing a personal essay or memoir is really pinpointing what is my what are my stakes here. What is what am I trying to achieve and what is standing in my way in this essay. My character wants to bridge a gap and become more connected to her father and what is standing in her way is his silence. So that's something I, I tried to sort of echo throughout the, the work.
1: There's a quote on page 71, I cannot reach into my father's mind and know what he is seeing as we look at the same landscape. I could ask him, but his silence has trained me over the years to know the answer wouldn't fill fill the void. And I just thought that's a really great example of of that obstacle to the narrator's ability to get what she wants, which is really understanding. And yet throughout the piece, she's just grappling with the fact that in some ways she has to fill in those gaps herself with her own imagination or speculation or try to derive, I guess, a conclusion through like a logical means (laughs) uh, because she's not going to maybe get that information directly as she had kind of hoped for. And I may never get
2: it. can only observe and speculate. And I think speculation is so important. It's not something that really comes naturally to me, but yeah, it's the, I, I, my tools are not perfect, but they're the, (laughs) it's the, all I have, you know, it's a journey. It's not going to maybe have the answers, but the journey is
1: the point, I suppose. Yeah. The telling of the story being evident as part of that journey. Absolutely. I mean, I I love to think about interiority in creative nonfiction in general and sort of all the different modes of interiority and how I do believe that is really where the story kind of comes together in an essay right you have all of these situations as you mentioned in the essay as Gornick mentions but the story itself comes from sort of like what we make of the experience and one one of the modes of interiority that I noticed in your essay was just imagination like when you had to imagine Uh, what Jeannie Kate looked like, for example, uh, because maybe there was no picture available. And so there's this idea of how can you tell a vivid story when you actually don't have the information or you don't have the memory. And I think that's such the beauty of CNF in general is that you fill in those gaps and you just let your reader know that you're filling in those gaps so that you can tell that vivid story. But I was just wondering if you'd be willing to uh, read that portrait of Jeannie Kate on page 62.
2: So this is my father's high school girlfriend. He's just driven us by her now abandoned house and we're driving away. We drive for a minute in silence. My father scans the landscape, tapping out a bead on the wheel. I wonder if he's remembering Jeannie Kate, the cheeky way she nibbled her pencil, how she stood in the front row at his shows and winked up at him between songs. In my mind, she's the stock 1950s girl next door, the spurned Bobby socked heroine whose loyalty is never enough. More Betty than Veronica, more Debbie Reynolds than Liz Taylor. But surely she was more than that. And maybe my father's not thinking of her right now anyway. Maybe he's thinking about the boy on that stage. What kind of life he would have led had he married Jeannie Kate and not my mother, whom he met years later in LA. Would he have managed the music store he worked at through high school, selling guitar strings and giving lessons to teenagers who wanted to pick like Scotty Moore? Or would he have become a farmer like so many who came before him relegate it to writing songs from the seat of his own tractor.
1: Even without that information, you can build that beautiful portrait based on kind of coming to conclusions about other descriptions. Back to our initial um, entry into this conversation about how place really determines identity and sort of where we land by happenstance or decision can determine sort of the whole future. And by speculating about you know, who he married and where he might have ended up, it just gives us this, it gives the reader this really rich landscape to think about uh, this sort of adventures of multiple places and multiple realities uh, that could have changed the entire path of this person's life. Definitely.
2: I think speculation is so crucial to creative nonfiction, and it's not something that really comes naturally to me because I started out my writing career as a reporter So I I really was trained to just deal with the facts in front of me. But what I've discovered by learning to inject more of my imagination on the page is how freeing it is to say like, oh, I don't know how it happened. I don't really know what Jeannie Kate was like but I imagine it might've gone down like this. And well, it works on a lot of levels, speculation, but one thing it does as well as giving us a window into the narrator's mind is it ramps up narrative tension. There's a great craft book I love called Burning Down the House by Charles Baxter. It's actually geared more towards fiction writers but I love it as a creative nonfiction writer. And he has this chapter called Stillness where he talks about the need to infuse silence into the story, to pause the narrative action and let the reader breathe. And there are many ways to do this like through exposition or description. But I think speculation is one of the most important ways. And what happens in these pauses, Baxter says, is the silence works as an intensifier. So it strengthens the action before and after it. And you see this all the time in literature and film, and you don't even probably realize it. Um, But like, for example, one example he gives is the film Pulp Fiction, which is a really violent movie but the scenes of extreme violence are sandwiched between these mundane scenes of characters sitting at a diner talking about nothing. And those moments, those nothing moments function on two levels. They give us insight into the character's minds. They make us care, making us care more about the actual characters. And then they also give us a necessary break from the action. That's why I don't watch like the Fast and Furious movies or straight action films, because if it's just fight scene after car chase after fight scene, I just lose interest. It's just too much action. I need to br- I need breaks. So take that passage with Jeannie Kate. It's not the best example of what I'm talking about because there's not a ton of dramatic action involved in driving around Lubbock in a Jeep, <laughs> but we'll use it. So by taking the reader in that moment out of the Jeep and into my mind, I infused stillness into that moment. And then when I returned to the Jeep, the reader hopefully has a renewed interest in the action conversation between my dad and me. So speculation, I think, gave that moment both character development and narrative tension. It's just a really important tool, I think.
1: Yeah, and I think one of the things that you speak to there is that the action doesn't have to be a fight scene. The action can be something really subtle, and, Mm -hmm. you know, I I hear a lot of even beginning writers talking about how they don't have, like, this big exciting story to tell, so they might as well not write, you know, I'm like, well, no, really, the the very subtle action can sometimes be every bit or more interesting than this intense fight scene or this really horrible thing happening to someone. Like we can really still tell those stories.
2: Absolutely. I mean, Joan Didion could probably read the phone book and I would read it. You know, I mean, I don't know about that, but she's got such a strong voice. It's not about so much of it is not about the story is the voice and the reflection and your take on it and how you process it so absolutely
1: yeah and it's interesting too to hear uh you know i think that that in like creative nonfiction workshops in general there seems to be this resistance to the reflective voice and yet you know the reflective voice i think most people would say is sort of where the story really lies so i find that really interesting I
2: do this thing where when I'm writing, I I sort of have, I, I think there's lots of different ways you can call them different things, voice of experience, voice of, Sue William Silverman is a great memoir writer and she calls it voice of innocence and voice of experience. I just sort of think of it in my mind as narration and reflection, narration and reflection. So when I'm telling a story, if I've got like story, 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 I think to myself, okay, time to step back and inject some reflection. I just think you should always be sort of balancing the two out. And then, you know, too much reflection can get a little bit boring too.
1: (laughs) One of the things in this story that really stood out to me is the way that it explores sort of the dispassionate nature of time and sort of how people and landscapes and places are are never in fixed form. And the thing that I found so admirable is the way that there's so many, I guess, objects and places that are so emblematic of that and sort of illustrate that and, uh, you know, One one of the lines, everybody remembers different things, I guess, when they read an essay, but one of the things I've never been able to forget from the very first time I read this essay, several months ago, I guess, was the hamburger with mustard. You know, (laughs) and this idea that the the narrator's father is, is giving a tour of the hometown of Meta. I say it right. Mm, yeah. Okay, meta. <laughs> and and says so right there is where basically the diner was where I had my first bite of hamburger with mustard. Mm-hmm. And to me, even just the, the, the ability to taste that and to think that's no longer there, but that mm-hmm. diner no longer exists or the house and the stories of things that happened at that house. And then the house is no longer there. And then even all the way down to the tractor in the field that's like a skeleton. Like I felt that you did such a beautiful job using these sort of physical objects and senses to show all of the loss and grief in this piece.
2: Yeah, I started, like I mentioned earlier, writing this essay after my dad had been battling cancer for a while. And now I read it and I think, oh yeah, there's a sadness that hangs over this essay like a cloud. And a couple of people have even told me they cried when they read it. And I understand why, because it touches on a very universal grief, the grief of watching our parents age and slip away, the knowledge that they are gone or will one day be gone. You know, I'm an only child, so I feel this fear and grief maybe even more acutely than other people sometimes. And, but it's interesting, like my visit to the home place, though it was, filled with such loss and, and like you said, these objects that, that their purpose has changed in life so much. Mm-hmm. The day was not really about grief for me. It actually felt mystical to me. Like I was being shown the ruins of my own family. And that to me, it felt like this rare, precious thing. And it brought me closer to my dad. It brought me closer to his truth and his experiences But yeah, I mean, when I look at it from my dad's point of view or from his brother Pete's point of view, the home place, what they call the family, this area of the family farm must carry grief, you know, so much grief for a nuclear family that's no no longer around, for a farm that was once filled with these rows of cotton that's no longer cultivated, even grief for the livestock who were killed, you know, during the drought relief service you know, they must look at this landscape with radically different perspectives, which are heavy with memories that I don't have. But even though I don't have those memories, I still felt weirdly connected to this place. And I took so many pictures that day, just to get it. Well, I thought, I thought it was, frankly, I thought they were cool. And also, I just wanted to remember everything from that day, because I knew I had to write about this. And when I flew home and showed the pictures to my spouse, he looked at them and said, what so like this is all just rotting out there and (laughs) I thought oh yeah he's seeing these pictures and thinking this is a junkyard and to me and it is on one level so why did I find this junkyard so beautiful (laughs) like that was that's partly why I wrote this essay to figure out why I had this experience why I found this decrepit field so mystical and meaningful I guess
1: I hadn't thought about the term like mysticism before that idea of like what ruins are, like how we process ruins when we see them. And, That's really interesting to me. And it makes me think of just this idea of understanding legacy based on whatever is left, like taking whatever we can to try to build knowledge and understanding, even if it is sort of a skeleton or even a ghost, you know, I, I, the more I read this essay, the more that, that title took on more and more meaning to me, the more I read the essay, because. It's like trying to make meaning from what is no longer there or what is barely there or what is sort of caught between these two worlds. And it's almost like the narrator feels this need to, I guess, to go back to the idea of preservation or to understand the story for herself, but also so that it's not totally lost. I I I have
2: inherited a lot of stories in my life. I kind of think of stories as spoken heirlooms. I don't, you know, I didn't inherit much from my grandparents on either side, but I did a lot of stories were passed down to me and I've always been more drawn to the stories on my dad's side partly because I think I was closer to my mother's family so I I had more in common with them on a surface level for one thing, but I also just felt like I understood them more like we we were the same. We were kind of cut from the same cloth whereas my dad's family was a bit of a mystery to me, <laughs> so yeah. So i I think that's what draws me to tell these particular stories is to understand how did these rugged cowboys from this remote Texas plain make such a stamp on m- our musical history.
1: That's such a compelling question. Yeah, to think, and that goes back to to what you were saying earlier, as far as questioning like just how this happened and how it might've happened differently had they stayed and, you know, had your, the narrator's dad worked at the music store and married someone different. And just like all of the possible variables that are so left to chance as far as how, who we become and how our places influence our identities and, and really our careers and our connections and our legacies. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's a
2: universal curiosity, like, oh, if I hadn't gone out that night in 1993 and met that person, what would I become? You know, that's like the, when you look at Hollywood films and literature, that's such a preoccupation. And it is, it's fascinating.
1: I was really zeroing in on this idea of legacy and sort of this multi-generational legacy, thinking about The grandparents, you know, the uncle, Sonny, you know, the narrator, and then even the narrator's children. And this piece really addresses, you know, the importance of land and ownership. The part of the story where I found myself really tearing up is when Sonny says that he wants to, to give that land, the shares of the farm, to the narrator's daughters, because it's always good to have, you know, basically something to fall back on. And so I was just curious if you wanted to say anything about legacy and land ownership.
2: Well, I'm, this is part of a larger book and that is a preoccupation with my book. That's a major theme is this quest for the land to leave the land, but, but you can, you, you, but always feeling this push and pull of the land you want, you know, he, he was, when he was in his twenties, he didn't want anything to do with this farm, but his whole life he's you know, pulled back to it so strongly. And that's echoed throughout his life in many ways that are relevant to this essay. But yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, I I have a hard time finding this story within the situation. That was a challenge in writing this essay because my dad is sort of a showman and he tells all these funny stories and, you know, what is the real story? But when he said that line at the very end about well, you know, I said, like, why would you leave it to my daughters? Like, that doesn't even make sense. And he said, well, you never know if things ever get rough in life. It's good to have some land to fall back on. When he said that, it was like a lightning bolt. I thought, well, that's it. That's the story. You that, that is it. The land to him represents security. It's a refuge. If things ever get rough in life, you always have this land. And it's his, that is, that's such a theme of my dad's life in many ways. I mean, right now I'm trying to get him to sell land and move somewhere smaller and he won't, he just refuses because that to him is the most, almost one of the most important things in the world. And so what are you going to (laughs) do? That's ingrained from him. I think from a young age as a Texan, I mean, this is the realized dream of the West and, and many people in this country is, you know, land ownership for, for better or worse, right? I mean, how many Native Americans had to die so we could claim these the frontier? And it's a really complicated, complex thing. And and you know, for my father's family, they clawed their way up from sharecroppers to landowners. That was they made it when they were able to own this land and not just work the land. That was a huge step forward, even though then they're journey became even harder in some ways because they had to cultivate this land and then that led to the Dust Bowl but you know it's it's complicated but yeah the the land is an intensely important thing to not just my family but to many people in this country obviously.
1: Yeah and I was thinking about how just you know land is sort of this connective tissue across generations too it's like a way of hopefully you know your narrator's children uh, continuing to potentially connect to this place and this culture that their, you know, that their grandparents came from or great-grandparents came from. And, Mm And how land is sort of this, as you mentioned, security, but it's also a connection to the culture of the family and a way of life. And even just an understanding of that connects back to this idea of growing up in poverty and trying to figure out, like, When you have no security, when you can't even take a bath before school, how can you get beyond that level of poverty and sort of arrive, so to speak, at some level of security and stability uh, culturally? And I think, you know, generation to generation, we just become so much more removed from the struggles of our, you know, grandparents and great-grandparents.
2: So true. Yeah
1: and i feel like the story then also serves to do that same work to kind of connect the generations as well which uh, you know even if i think that might have been maybe your your initial impetus in some ways like you said to preserve but the story goes goes well beyond that by helping us understand sort of this public collective history and then also populating that place and those histories with these unique stories I think of the
2: quote. Um, Eudora Welty has a quote I love that, one place understood helps us understand all places better. I mean, I think it's, you know, you peel back the layer of any town and you find these amazing histories. And yeah, I I I, I do think connection. You're you're right. Connectivity is a is a big goal of mine in writing these and trying to preserve and pin down my life in words and <laughs> pass something along.
1: So you mentioned just a minute ago uh, that you're, this is part of a, a larger project, and I'm wondering if you want to say just a little bit more about that for our listeners so we can know what you're up to and what we can look for next from you.
2: Yeah, so this is this essay is part of my memoir in progress called Daughter of a Song, and I've been working on it since 2016. Um, it started out as a biography, and then I went back to get my MFA sort of to help me wrangle it to the ground and then it during that period it morphed into a series of essays and now it's sort of become a memoir. So <laughs> it's it's been quite an adventure writing this book. It's a book I feel like it's the story I've carried with me in some ways my whole life and it's um, I think of it almost like a close friend like we have an interactive relationship like oh I'm going to sit down and connect with my book now for a minute and <laughs> I think I'll actually be quite sad when I finish it because it's been really a journey for me.
1: So I am thinking of teaching your essay to a special topics and creative nonfiction course. And I'm just kind of curious as to, you know, what you might want to tell students who are people who are sort of new to creative nonfiction uh, about the process of writing this or um, anything about it that we haven't covered so far.
2: I think when I started writing personal essays years ago, I felt like I had a limited number of experiences worth writing about. Like I had this fixed savings account of essays that I had to carefully dole out. (laughs) But what I've come to see is we, as writers, we don't just get one shot at an experience. It's not like, oh, I wrote about Texas and my dad, I can never touch those subjects again. You can look at a gemstone from many angles, you know, and in terms of finding your story, I would say that it's a lifelong pursuit, but maybe start by thinking about what, what are your obsessions or your oddities or the parts of life that get under your skin. And then when you do find a story you wanna write about, you should always ask yourself why, I think. Why is this the story I want to tell? Constantly interrogate your own motivations. You know, when I started writing this book, I thought it was, like I mentioned earlier, it was filled with interesting stories. What was there not to like? Well, that's not necessarily enough. People wanna read my connection to these stories and my take on it. They want me to serve as a bridge between the material and, and the reader. And lastly, I would just say, you know, the events in the Ghosts of Lubbock took place in 2017. This essay was accepted in 2020. That means that I I tinkered with this essay for like three years. I mean, good writing takes time. And you know I wasn't just sitting in a room writing it the whole time I have to say it's kind of pathological (laughs) I was writing other things too (laughs) but it did take me years to write this and to and to figure out what I what the actual story was and then even after it was accepted at the Colorado Review it had to go through a rigorous fact checking and editing process which you know because you were I think participated in that thank you by the way So, this is not to discourage students, but just to say that good writing takes time. And, you know, it's not like Athena, it doesn't spring fully formed from your head. It would be great if it did. But, you know, I I just remind yourself that when you're looking at a literary essay or a book and you think, oh, I could never write that, the finished work you're holding in your hand likely took years to write and involved professional editing. So, don't get discouraged by your shitty first drafts, because we all have them. Just keep writing and keep tinkering. And I think most importantly, keep looking for the deeper story because it's there somewhere. If you look hard enough, you'll find it.
0: Thank you, podcast listeners. That was this month's episode. Next time on Colorado Review Podcast, we are talking with Danny Tiemann about his short story, One Bad Night in San Jose, Costa Rica, winner of the 2021 Nelligan Prize for Short Fiction.